If you have your Bible today, turn to Luke chapter 19. We've been looking at a new series this last week and this week. It's from uh, taken, the ideas are taken from this little book called Radical. It's by David Platt. He's a young pastor in in, uh, the southeast. And uh, David Platt has written some interesting things. I've said before I like some of the things he wrote. I don't necessarily like everything he wrote. And today we're looking at the concept of being famished, of being famished. I don't usually stand up and say I'm famished because I tend to be well-fed. To be famished, according to Webster's Dictionary, means to endure severe, extreme hunger. Severe, extreme hunger. And, And I mean, we say, oh, I'm famished, but are we really talking about severe and extreme hunger? I, I did my usual, I always put a, a, a word into the, uh, the internet and do a search, a Google search or whatever, and I came up with several interesting things. One is the famished frog. The famished frog. That's a restaurant in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm thinking, why would you name a restaurant the famished frog? I just... And I tried to research the history of it, and it was just because somebody's weird. That's the only thing I could figure out. That's why they named it that. I've rarely experienced that literal physical, that, that feeling that if I don't get some food, I'm going to starve. But I, I read a, a book at one point called The Famished Road. I remember, and that's one of the reasons I, I came up with this. It's not necessarily a book I would recommend. It was written by a Nigerian. His name is Ben Oki. It's very mystical, has a lot of occult in it. I didn't like the feel of the book, but there were a couple things in the book that really grabbed me. It's a story of Azaro. It's, it's a fictional tale, a boy born into uh, starvation, extreme poverty, crime. Uh, he, he had a, a debilitating disease, and they didn't think he would live to, to be 12 years old. And in this story, at one point, the, the boy goes to his father and says, Father, why is our life like this? And the father replies, Son, life is a road we are building. And the boy replies back, why did we choose the famished road? Life is a road we're building. And the boy says, why did we choose the famished road? He was so hungry. And, and in the story, it tells the fact that he could feel his ribs. And he, and he said, I felt like I was being eaten inside out because I was so hungry that my stomach no longer existed. And I felt like if I didn't put something in there, it would just disappear. The Famished Road, what's interesting is the subtitle or, or one of the, the, the things that they put on the front, the blurbs that they're always getting to try, trying to get you to read the book, it says it's a powerful allegory of a love powerful enough to defy death. A love powerful enough to de- defy death. And if that's not a picture of what we have in Jesus Christ, someone has written this fictionalized account, but the real people who are famished are us spiritually. We are parched, we're famished, and Jesus comes, and when he comes to the earth in Matthew 5, verse 6, this is what he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, literally they will be sated, they will be satisfied. It's not just that you're physically filled up, but that that hunger is finally taken care of. And my question to you today, the question that we're going to try to answer is, have you chosen the famished road of life? Have you chosen? Why have we chosen the famished road? Have you chosen a famished road of life? Jesus, again, in in Matthew chapter 7, a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, he says to them, don't you understand there's this wide gate, there's this broad road, and it leads you away from life. It leads you to the wrong place. It leads to destruction. But there is a small gate. There is a narrow road. 
and few there be that find it. Luke chapter 19 is a very, very familiar story. It's, it's something that happened in the life of Jesus. And we're going to ask this question, why am I starving? Why am I starving? Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. As we read it, you'll understand exactly why I said it's so familiar. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, Jim was asking if you knew the song something about uh, roller skates and Superman and Batman. I'm, I'm, this, is, this is youth pastor speak, okay? He, he knew that song. I did not know that song. Praise God, there's a song I don't know. But there's another song about Zacchaeus. How does it go? Zacchaeus was a... And a wee little man was... He climbed up... Sycamore tree. There you go. See, you guys know... Jim, you got to get the classics, buddy. That's what it is. When I was growing up, I thought Zacchaeus was about an inch and a half tall because that's how far we put our fingers. Zacchaeus was a wee... I thought he was Tom Thumb. See, wee little man. Go back to the, the, the passage. It says, Jesus entered Jericho. Important point. That's where... Zacchaeus was. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Stop there for just a minute. Why am I starving? Well, I think there's two questions that really will answer that. What am I consuming? What am I consuming? What is, what is going into my life? It's interesting because Kathy and I have been married now for, for 36, 30, uh, who knows, uh, 43 years. I don't remember. No, no, 36 years, over 36 years. We've been married. And I was thinking back as we were thinking about Christmas gifts and what to spend, and we were doing a little shopping, and we were at TJ Maxx and, you know, and all these other places and looking at things. And, and uh, I was looking for a Chia Pet for Gary. Oh, I'm, I wasn't supposed to say that out loud. No, I, I was looking for some things, and I was remembering back some other Christmases when, we were fin- when I was finishing up Bible college. We were so poor. We had no money. And uh, back then, there, there were some really neat ceramics that came out that were quite expensive, and we couldn't afford them. But, but I found plaster of plaster Paris casts of the same thing. And so we bought the plaster of Paris casts, and we painted them ourselves as close as we could to match these really expensive porcelains, these ceramic. And they, and they were like a head of a, sh- of a sailor and, and a shepherd, and they were really cool. I mean, in the original, they were really cool. In, in our version of them, they weren't quite as cool, but we spent hours painting and, and, and sanding and getting those things just as perfect as we could. And, and we were so excited about giving something. That's all we had. We had no money. And I was working in a bank and I was working at a church and, and I was just trying to have enough money and I made some stained glass and sold it there at the bank. The bank was gracious enough to let me put a couple things up as, a, as I was working as a teller and they would buy, you know, I'd come home and I'd say, Kathy, I got $12. And she said, $12, praise God. What are we consumed by today? Now we think about that, and it's Placer of Paris, and we think of, of selling something for 6 or 5 or $12, and, and we think, oh, that's not anything. I mean, you know, what's, what's the newest toy going to be? What's the newest, you know, I, I look at the Xbox 360 and this and that and all these things, and they're hundreds of dollars. When were we, when, when was life most meaningful? When we were, the, were we the happiest? What do you cherish? 
What are, we, what are we consuming? We live in a land of self-improvement. And our, and our network channels, our cable channels, tell us about that. Home and garden television. We have food network. We have, if you don't want to improve your home or you don't want to improve your meals, then you're going to improve yourself. So you have P90X. They're going to pump you up. You, you know, there's insanity. Anybody that exercises is insane. So that, sh- that should work just fine. There's Firm Express. There's all these other things to get you in shape. And, and there's so many wrinkle creams out there. I think it's terrible. I was talking to my brother David not that long ago, and he's gained some weight, and he blames the shampoo because all the shampoo now says it's volumizing. And he says, I wash my hair, it comes down to my body, and woof, I'm puffed out. We live in this world of self-improvement. If, if we could just, I can become a, a, a better me. There's, you know, some guy named Bosley can restore my hair. Yeah, right. And there's all these things now, it's for a sagging neck. Some of us are worried about Thanksgiving because we're afraid we have so much one of these that somebody's going to mistake us for a turkey and kill us. And it's all fixed on TV, right? And we laugh about it, but, but that's our focus. I can become a better me. I can experience my best life. David Platt in this book says we're self-sufficient, we're self-confident. And when we come to church, the only thing that we change is we say a little prayer, a little selfish prayer, Lord bless me. We apply an occasional dose of church. We obey carefully selected parts of the Bible, those parts that aren't too painful to me. We, we, we obey those selected parts of the Bible, and then we're okay, we're great. And that's the life we're living. And that describes Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was wealthy. He had it all together. I mean, when people looked at him, they thought he had a great job. They thought he had a great position. He's higher in the Roman tax collecting system than Levi because the term that's applied to him is architelones. Architelones means that you're the, t- the chief, the, the top or one of the tops. He's located in Jericho. I mentioned that. East-west, if you went from Jerusalem and you went east, you had to go through Jericho and you had to pay a custom tax, especially if you were using trade. If you went north and south and you didn't want to go through Jerusalem and many of them did not, there was also a major road that came up the, the east side of the mountains and you had to go through Jericho. This guy was living pretty. He was getting people, if they go north, south, or east and west, he's going to get a tax. And so here he is, he's living the large life, he's clawed his way to the top, and there's still something that he wants. He's consumed all these things, and it's not enough. He's done all of this stuff, and there's still this longing. He's short of stature, and he had to climb a tree. In our vernacular, in our way, Bill Gates is out there, and he's got all this money and everything you could imagine, and there's still something more he wants, and you see this billionaire climbing the tree to see somebody just to see what he looks like. We can't imagine that, or can we? There's a group of people out today that they they just continue to want to get someone's attention. They call themselves Occupy Wall Street. I'm not going to get into politics, but I ran across a great article on Crosswalk by Matt Bell. This is what he says. Among the articles I've read about Occupy Wall Street, a sympathetic one in the, in the Chicago Tribune, claimed the protesters or the protests were hitting home with everyday Americans. This is what the writer of the article says in Chicago Tribune. Many people feel like they've done all the right things. They've worked hard. They've tried to save a little money in 401, uh, 401k accounts. They put a roof over their family's heads. They paid their bills. Even if they weren't as careful about debt as they now know they should have been, and then they had the rug pulled out from under them by corporate greed and governmental mishaps. This is what Matt Bell says. Don't shoot the messenger, but I have issues with that article. 
It's true that many corporate leaders have been outrageously and even criminally greedy. And many generations of elected officials have put our country on shaky financial ground. No one is disputing that. However, many people on Main Street have not done all the right things. In fact, they've shunned the use of a household budget. They've saved far too little. They've bought way more house than they could afford. And they've been reckless in their use of debt. Ouch. Before we can credibly demand governmental or corporate change, many of us need to make some changes. Here's my three-step platform. It's from the Bible for household financial reform. Number one, use a budget. Guide the use of your household income by planning it out. Number two, avoid all debt other than reasonable mortgage. That means controlling your credit cards, making, being responsible, breaking the habit of financing vehicles. Sorry if you work in the car industry. Number three, consciously set your financial priorities. Putting generosity, giving to your local church, saving and investing ahead of consumer spending. Households that operate by these biblical principles will be in the best position to stand strong no matter what happens in corporate America or Washington. They will be the most credible voices calling for corporate or governmental changes. You see, we're saying, oh, poor us. What are we consuming? We are consumed with consuming. Now Halloween is the number two holiday because you're spending an, an average of over $100 per person in all of America for Halloween. How could we live a Halloween without spending 100 bucks? And Christmas, the great, the great consumer holiday is coming up. I had somebody come to me not long ago, and they said, Pastor, what are we going to do on Christmas? And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, Christmas falls on Sunday. And I said, yes, we're going to worship. And they said, but it's Christmas. (laughs) And my response is, where did that holiday come from? And they said, well, yeah, yeah, we know, we know it's Christ's birth, but what are we going to do? A lot of churches are closing down on Christmas. And I said, we're going to be open. 1015, regular time, one service right here. You can go ahead and open whatever gifts, and you don't need to feel guilty about it, but come and worship the Lord. What are we consuming? What am I consuming? I also ran across this, uh, Jacques Ellul. I don't know who Jacques Ellul is, but this is what he said. The first great fact which emerges from our civilization is that today everything has become means There's no longer an end. You know, there's a means to an end. He says it's just means. There's no longer an end. We do not know whither we are going. We have forgotten our collective ends, and we possess great means. And this is a line I love. We set huge machines in motion in order to arrive nowhere. That describes who we are as a nation. That's that's who we are as a society. And if we're not careful, that's who we are as a church. 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul is writing to this church that's, that's devastated by and rocked by the warfare within it, and it says, where's the wise man, where's the scholar, where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says, do you understand how much of the American dream has crept into the church today, folks? 
Moses Chantla, the missionary that we're praying for this week, Moses and Dina went back to India. They lived here for two and a half, almost three years. And they had their little son here, and they went back to India, and they had a, a conference. And Gary Dixon and I were going to go, and they wouldn't give me a visa because I put pastor down on my visa application. They didn't want a Christian pastor in their nation. And Moses and his father and his family called for this conference of believers, and they were expecting 2,500 to 3,000. They had 6,500 believers in India show up for four days. Many of them walked hours and days. They didn't have chairs for, it, for even the 2,500. So 6,500 people for four days set on concrete, maybe had a little pad, maybe had a little material that they put underneath them, and they set eight to ten hours a day. And when they got done at the end of the day, they said, more, can you tell us more? Can you read more? Some of us don't have Bibles. We need to know more. No air conditioning, no comforts, and they're hungry for the Lord. What am I consuming? Number two, what should I be craving? You see, I'm really torn. The church in America got stuck in the 50s and the 60s, the way the church looked, and we forgot to update and we cease to relate to a younger generation. We, we should have a clean, appealing place. When I look around this place, my brother from Naples, Florida, was here a couple weeks ago just for a day. And I, and I got to show him around the place. And they walk in and you, and you see the sanctuary. And the, the first feeling is, wow, this is a great place to worship. And it should be that. We should give the Lord the very best. But I'm also torn because is that what we crave is that what, we, what it's all about? If we, could just, if we could just have the newest and neatest church, would people come to it? Is that what it's all about? Kathy, 36, 37 years ago, you know, I was pursuing her. Or she was pursuing me. I can't remember which way that was. One of us tripped along the way and we caught one another. No, I asked Kathy to marry me. And we were living in Kansas City. We were going to Calvary Bible College. And, and I asked Kathy to marry me. And she said, I'd, you know, after three or four months, she said, yeah, I guess I'll do that. <laughs> really wasn't quite that bad. She said, I'd love to marry you. And I said, well, where should we get married? And she said, well, I grew up in Kadoka, South Dakota. Y'all know where Kadoka is, right? It's halfway between Wall and Murdo. Does that help you? I typed Kadoka into spell check and it didn't know that it was a word. That's where Kadoka is. It's not a huge place. And I said, I'm not going to get married in Kadoka. I don't even know where Kadoka is. I've never been to Kadoka. I don't know Kadoka. That's not where we're going to get married. We're going to get married where I want to get married. You think I said that? No chance. You know what I said? I will get married to you anywhere you want to get married, anytime you want to get married, any way you want to get married. It's not about where we get married. It's the fact that I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And I've not changed that in 36 years. That's what love is all about. And if you love the Lord, it shouldn't be about how it looks or what it sounds like or what it's all about. Do you love him? Zacchaeus was not drawn to a style of ministry. He was not drawn to the newest music. They were outside. He was climbing a tree. It's not a new building. It's not the latest fad. He wanted to see who Jesus was. 
Who is this Jesus? He's the sovereign creator, according to Nehemiah 9.6. He's perfect in knowledge, according to Job 37.16. He sustains all of life, in Hebrews 1.3. He owns all. It is all his, according to Deuteronomy 10.14. He is the holy of the holies, 1 Samuel 2.2. He is the perfect in all of his actions and all that he does, in Deuteronomy 32.4. He is infinitely loving, in 1 John 4.16. He is the God of all grace, in Ephesians 3.2. He is the Father of compassion, in 2 Corinthians 1.3. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end in Revelation 1.8. He is the faithful and true, and one day he will come back, and there will be on his, across his chest and on his side the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who I love. That's who I want. That's who I crave. And when you get a glimpse, just a little glimpse of that, all of a sudden, it creates a hunger and it creates a thirst inside you. Jesus came to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 15. And he offered her something. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. The truth is we're all famished. We just don't know what we've been craving. Why am I starving? Because of what we have been consuming and what we should be craving has been missing. Go back to Luke chapter 19, verses 5 through 10, because the second part of this is how can I be satisfied? How can I be satisfied? When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up, saw Zacchaeus, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. It wasn't just that he came down and says, oh, you know, I really haven't prepared for you, Lord. He says he welcomed him. He went thinking that he wanted to see Jesus, and he found out that Jesus wanted to see him even more. All the people saw this, verse 7, and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner, because if you were a rich tax collector, that meant you were crooked. If you were a rich tax collector, that meant that you were, you were taking in more taxes than you should have, and you, you gave the government what you had to give the Roman government, but you kept a whole lot more for yourself, and so he's rich. But Zacchaeus, in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to, to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated any, anybody out of anything, that's funny. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, again, what did we say? He was crooked. Had he cheated him? Absolutely. Should be. Since I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son, a descendant of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. We know the story, but do we understand the ramifications? How can I be satisfied? Number one, reach for what you need. Start reaching out for the things that really satisfy. When Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, he took the first step. And when you begin to take that first step, when you begin to reach for those things that will really satisfy, when you welcome God into your life, when you begin to read the Bible, when you can begin to pray, when you decide that coming to church is more important than anything else that you do this week, then you decide that you're going to spend time with the Lord and make Him the priority in your life, then you're going to fulfill what it says in Hebrews 10. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. Come on, worship me. Worship the Lord. We're quick to reach for things that, that look good, sound good, feel good for the moment. How's that working for you? How's that working for you? 
What do I need? In Genesis 8.21, it says that every inclination of the heart is evil from childhood. Ephesians 4.18 says that we have been darkened in our understanding. We've been separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardening of our hearts. We have hard hearts. We have blinded eyes. We've been separated. We've been darkened in our understanding. We don't get it. We have this inclination toward evil. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says we're spiritually blind. Romans 5, verses 6 through 10, three different times. First of all, it says, listen, when we were powerless, Christ died for us. And then it says when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When it says we were enemies of God, literally shaking our fists in rebellion to God, God died, Jesus Christ died for us. Do we even know what we need until Christ reveals it? I took my bicycle in, the bicycle that I had a little mishap about a month ago, uh, took a little tumble on the thing, and you know, the, the front rim was bent just a little bit, and I rode it back after I took my tumble and broke a couple of ribs and some other things, I rode six miles home, because that's what guys do, because we're not smart enough to stop and call, you know, I had a cell phone, but, so I rode it six miles home, and then I decided, Kathy's gone to Women of Faith, maybe they can straighten the rim before she gets home, great minds. And I took it in. He, the guy says, did you check the fork? I said, I didn't have a fork with me. And he says, no, the front fork on the, the bicycle. And I said, no. He says, well, it's carbon. I wonder if it's cracked. And I said, I don't know. And so they began to check. And when they pulled it, just gently pulled it apart, it immediately broke into about 12 pieces. So I'd ridden six miles on something that if I'd hit a curb good, I would have gone over the front of the bike and broken the ribs on the other side. I didn't know what was broken until I went in to get it fixed. And the Lord says, if you'll come to me, I'll tell you. Nicodemus came one night. And he thought, as this ruler in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came and he, he thought that he knew what was going wrong. And he says, Lord, I, I, I'm a teacher of Israel. I just want you to fine-tune my, my theology. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. Zacchaeus comes and he climbs up the tree and he looks at Jesus and, and he says, I, I just wanted to see what he looks like. And Jesus says, I want to come to your house. Don't you wish Jesus still made house calls? He does. He says, come to me and I will answer you and I'll show you great and mighty things that you don't know. He says, open your heart and I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He says, I will be with you. The Holy Spirit that we were singing about, he says, when I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he will abide in you and teach you all things. You can't go away from his presence. And by the way, he's written you this love letter called the Word of God and he wants you to read it. Jesus Christ makes house calls. Psalm 19.7 says this way, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving or fulfilling or satisfying the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. If you want the Lord to come, you reach for this. And Zacchaeus welcomed him with open arms, said, Come to my house. My question to you this morning is, how much time did you spend with Jesus this week? Number two, not only reach for what you need, but number two, depend on Christ for a radical transformation. What happened to Zacchaeus that day was radical. It was just as radical as what happened when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Lazarus has been dead for four days and he comes back and everybody goes, ooh, ah, he raised somebody from the dead. Here's what he did for this man. 
this man who was selfish and he was crooked, all of a sudden he became straight, he became honest, he had integrity, and all of a sudden God began to work in him in ways that only God can. Because for the greed, it immediately melted away. He says, I'll give half of my goods to the poor. Nowhere in the Old Testament did it demand that. Nowhere did Jesus ever ask for that. It wasn't that he was trying to impress Jesus. He was so overwhelmed by the change that had taken place in his heart, he wanted to respond in some way. He was transformed. And then he gave, he says, if there's anyone who I've cheated, I'm, I'm going to give back four times. And in Exodus 22.1, there is a, a provision that if you have stolen an animal, there may be a repayment. But for what he did, really, Leviticus 5.16 really applies more. And it says, if you've cheated someone, give them back what you've cheated plus 20% interest. Zacchaeus was not saved because he did a good deed. Zacchaeus was saved because like Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. His money followed his heart. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do we expect people to be transformed? When someone comes and they, they come to know the Lord today, maybe as a child, but maybe as an adult, do we expect them to be transformed? Do we expect their life to be so turned upside down? I, I, I hear the, the, the testimony of, of Steve and Jackie Rika, and I see what happened to them. Steve was doing some things that he should never have been doing. His life was so far from the Lord, and Jackie was, was at a point of despair where she was ready to take her life. And someone, as she was coming out of a bar, gave her a tract, a Christian tract, and she read it, and she was saved, and she shared it with her husband, and he was saved, and their life was completely turned inside out. And we see that, and we say, praise God, but my question is, have you been just as turned inside out, radically transformed? We should be. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, look at what it says. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Who's the one going to appear? Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes back, we are going to be like him. Not be him, not be God's. But we're going to be purified. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Does someone see you out on the street and they think he's becoming more and more, she's becoming more and more like Christ? Do they see you over the years and they say they're becoming more and more and more like their Savior? Do they see you and they say, wow, look at the way they're growing spiritually. Look at, not just that they have biblical knowledge, but they have grace and love that just exudes from them. I don't think we get that. Depend on Christ for radical transformation. Here's the last one. Respond from your heart. Respond from your heart. I'm pretty sure he didn't take a calculator out and, and figure out, let's see if I give half there and I do four times that. Well, I've, I've made enough money. I'm still going to be okay financially. This was not a logical thing that, that he did. Zacchaeus didn't say, well, let me just figure out what I can do here. He stood in from the heart. He began to pour out any way he could a demonstration of what God had done to him. Psalm 86, verses 11 through 13. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O my Lord, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You've delivered me from the depths of the grave. 
On that day when I had the bike wreck, if instead of hitting on my side and my ribs and I'd broken the ribs, if I had been there and there would have been blood pouring from my head and I had been dying and someone had come across, there was a woman who was an EMT who stopped to see how badly battered I was. I must have been a side, six feet tall, 200 plus pounds, end over end, falling, grabbing this kid so that he doesn't hurt himself and letting him bang into me so that I didn't even try to break my fall with my arms. I must have been a sight. And she stopped and she said, are you okay? And if I'd been lying there and she'd saved my life, do you think I would have been appreciative of that? Do you think maybe I would have said thank you? Do you think I would have stopped and, and said, listen, I, I, I would like to do something to make this. Please. As it was, just with the bruised ribs, the, what I thought then were bruised ribs and later broken ribs, I said, give me your name. She says, it doesn't matter. We're all bikers and we all help each other. One day I was tooling along in my life and I was dying. And the Savior came to me and he said, I can save you. Christ moved me from meaninglessness, from despair to certainty, to a point of hope. I don't have hope because of a religion or a church. I have hope because of a person. I may fear, I may, may be in awe. I will praise you, O Lord, my, my God, with all my heart. Give me an undivided heart. David Platt has an incredible quote as he is as he is writing, he says this, we've taken the infinitely glorious Son of God who endured the infinitely terrible wrath of God and who, who now reigns as the infinitely worthy Lord of all. Get that. We've taken the infinitely glorious Son of God who endured the infinitely terrible wrath of God, now reigns as the infinitely worthy Lord of all. We've reduced him to a poor, puny Savior who begs us to accept him. Accept him? Do we really need Jesus? Do we really think Jesus needs our acceptance? Don't we need him? I invite you to consider with me a proper response to this gospel. Surely more than a praying of prayers involved. Surely more than religious attendance at some church is warranted. Surely this gospel invokes unconditional surrender of all that we are and all that we have to all that he is. That's pretty powerful. Respond from your heart. Tim Tebow was asked this last week, he had a devastating performance and he was just drilled. He was just, every time he looked up there was some 300 pound guy getting up from having tackled him and sacked him. And the reporter said this to him, Tim Tebow, now that you've been in the NFL for a few weeks and you started a couple of times and you're just being killed out there as a quarterback, what do you think now of being a starting quarterback? And he says, you don't, you don't understand. This is what he said. He's a Christian and he says, to me, playing football is kind of the difference between being a stadium-seating Christian and being a player. The stadium-seating Christian, they sit up in the seats, they watch from a distance, they hear the sounds, they feel the excitement, but they never get in the game. He said, God placed within me this desire to be in the game. I may be terrible, I may not ever make it through the season, but God's given me this desire to be in the game. A ritual, distant relationship never creates a hunger. I was watching a video. The Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir had come to this church and they were singing. And one of the, the members of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir 
was there and, and they were giving their testimony before they sang this particular song. And many of their testimonies, you know, they were former prostitutes, they were, they were drug addicts, they were all these, these people who had, had horrible lifestyles. And this particular guy says, I was an accountant. He, he said, I, I lived a pretty good life in, in New York. And he says, I thought everything was fine and, and my wife and I were having trouble, but I didn't think it was anything all that serious. And then I found out she was having an affair and, and he said, my, my life turned upside down, but I didn't want to divorce her. And all of a sudden, she went one night with a friend to this church, and she came back, and I saw this transformation in her life. And I decided I needed to find out what had happened. So I went with her to this church, and he said, at Brooklyn Tabernacle, I met Jesus Christ. No drugs, no, none of these other things. He says, I, I went from being this, this, having this pretty decent job with a pretty decent relationship and knowing I needed some help to all of a sudden finding out that Jesus Christ was the center of everything. And then they sang this song. And the camera kept going back to this man. And there were tears just pouring out down his face. As he sang, he got more and more emotional. And, and, and as they panned across the choir, and I know it, it, it is somewhat symbol, symbolic of, of who they are in, in their culture, in their society, but this particular guy, he was born in Germany, or his, his, he came from Germany. He wasn't, he wasn't African-American. He was stoic, but he was brokenhearted because God had done something to him. And as the tears coursed down their face, and I was listening to this song, they ended it, and they were singing a carol, a song, and all of a sudden it came to the end, and they broke into a chorus of, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow, and they were supposed to end. And Carol Symbolist said, we have to sing it again, and they sang it again. And people began kneeling on the platform and, and singing and praying, and they sang it again. And she says, we have to do it again. And they raised their hands, and they were weeping, and the place was getting wet everywhere. Their, their, their clothes, you could see the streaks of, of tears coming down their clothes. And she said, we have to sing it again. And, and the last time they sang it, it was like this huge... I mean, like a hurricane sound, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. They were hungry. When Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. In Revelation 7, it gives us a picture again of, of the Alpha and the Omega. And he says, come to me and you'll never again hunger, you'll never again thirst. Would you bow with me? Father, you've heard, as we've listened to your message, a radical message, not just of saying a little prayer or coming to a church, but a radical message of, of surrender, of giving all that we are and all that we have to the one who is all, who has all. Father, you don't want part of us. You want our heart and our life and our love and our mind and our children, and our grandchildren, and our work, and our spouse, and our homes. You want it all because you want to have the most wonderful relationship because of your grace. Lord, we don't deserve it. We can't earn it, but you give it. So we give you in response to your gift, your son. We give you everything. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.